Turn with me. We're headed to Genesis chapter 40. Making our way through this book, one chapter at a time. For the most part. So strange to me, sometimes this happens, but um, there are things that were said this morning in the equipping hour, which by the way, if you're not here for equipping hour, you're missing it. It is not for our own health that we do that. Blake had a great message this morning on false teachers and false teaching. Blake, let me tell you how this is going to work, buddy. You did a lot of teaching this morning, and you will get a lot of questions about it. Half of it will be from people that weren't here, so you'll get to preach it again about five or six times. (laughs) By the end of it, you will know it well. But some of the things that he said are actually, I think he stole them out of my notes because they're figuring in. And then the the passage that was actually the scripture this morning, the scripture reading this morning is, is in a message this morning as well. So it's as if there's... A plan to it all. It's being woven by someone that's not ourselves. All right. Last time I preached, we covered chapter 39. We talked about Joseph being falsely accused and thrown into the dungeon. (coughs) And I gave you a rundown of the timeline of Joseph's life here because it's very important to remember. When he was sold by his brothers, he was 17. That means he had the dream that... The latest he could have had the dream, he was 17. He may have been 16 or 15. But the latest that he could have had that dream was 17. He sold by his brothers when he was 17. At the time he was elevated to a position of power by Pharaoh, he was 30. Chapter 41 tells us. So he was in prison for at least two years before his promotion. Which means that at this point in time, when we see him here in chapter 40... He had spent at least 11 years in slavery for something he did not do. Remember, he was not thrown into the pit because he did wrong. He was thrown into the pit because he was done wrong. So I want you to realize that because I want you to realize and see that Joseph's rise to prominence was not achieved quickly or easily. I also told you last time that Potiphar was the captain of the guard which is something like the head of Pharaoh's personal security forces. It would have been something like the top Gestapo agent and the head of the Secret Service and the head of you know, the national police, like all rolled into one. This was a man that was very accustomed to violence. He had no problem with torture or bloodshed. He was very good at interrogation methods, or as today they're called enhanced interrogation methods. He was well-connected politically. He was not the guy that you wanted to make angry. But we also learned that his wife was a real number, too. A real number as well. I probably should have worded that differently. Although, although the word picture does kind of work. So She's got those wandering eyes, and she can't be trusted. She's got her heart set on getting young Joseph into bed with her. But Joseph has way too much integrity for that. She grabs a hold of Joseph's clothing one day after getting this whole thing set up. She grabs a hold of his clothing and she tells him to jump in bed with her. And what does he do? 
He does exactly what the scripture prescribes and he flees from sexual immorality. Our New Testament says the same thing. Flee from sexual immorality for all other sins a man does are outside his body. But even sexual immorality, he sins even against his own body. So Joseph does exactly as he should, and he flees sexual immorality. But his act of fleeing from this wicked adulteress also scorns the evil woman. So when Potiphar gets home, she falsely accuses Joseph of attempted rape. Potiphar, in return, throws Joseph into the basement, which also happens to be Pharaoh's prison. I told you that was a very interesting action by Potiphar, because if Potiphar would really have believed... One of his slaves had attempted to rape his wife. That slave would have been dead by nightfall. So we can see here, Potiphar probably doesn't actually believe what his wife's telling. He knows who his wife is. This guy, for a living, sniffs out people with wrong motives. I mean, part of his job was to uncover plots against the Pharaoh. Trust me, he understood people's motivation. This is not a guy that doesn't have any discernment. It's just a guy that doesn't know how to handle the situation. He doesn't. You got to remember this about Joseph. Joseph was very. Joseph is living in his house. Joseph was a close friend of his. By this, he's not just his slave. He's his confidant. He's his friend. He trusts him implicitly. He doesn't want to just get rid of Joseph. He doesn't want to kill Joseph. He doesn't want to send Joseph off somewhere. So he does probably what in his mind would be making the best of a bad situation. He says, you know what? I'll throw you down into the basement, the dungeon in the basement, separate you and the wife. And that's how I'll kind of, you know, attempt to quell this problem here. So instead of being beheaded, Joseph is imprisoned. And that's actually a pretty light sentence considering the weight of the accusations. Likely because Potiphar knows the accusations aren't true. So Joseph is moved to the prison, but there's a particular and peculiar wrinkle in the story. The jail that he's in is under Potiphar's house. It's in his basement, and so we'll see that reference twice today, in fact, in in chapter 40. But it was designed that way so that Potiphar could keep watch over all of these political prisoners day and night. He doesn't have to run all the way across town to the prison if something goes down. He's there by design. So Joseph was still very much within the circle of Potiphar's influence. He was still in Potiphar's house. He would have still seen Potiphar on a regular basis. And it doesn't look like Potiphar no longer trusts him. In fact, it looks just the opposite. Because the man under Potiphar, Potiphar's right-hand man, who's basically the warden of the jail, is going to go, Hey, you know what? I put Joseph in charge of all of that, too. And Potiphar has no problem with that. If Potiphar wouldn't have trusted him, he couldn't have done that. And here's why. In that day and time, if you were the guy over the jail and you lost a prisoner, you found that prisoner or you died. You would die in his place. So you aren't going to put somebody over this thing if you don't trust them 100%. Because your life's on the line, literally. Think about what's going on here from a moral perspective. The righteous man who was faithful to his master and his friend who did nothing wrong is now languishing in the dungeon. And even more so, not just languishing in the dungeon, he's actually doing the job of the master, if you will, of the dungeon. And he's doing it well. 
These men who have treated him wrongly are still able to trust him completely. Well, that says something about his character, doesn't it? That tells you that he is unwilling to take revenge into his own hands. That says something about a person's character. Could he have taken revenge into his own hands? All he had to do was let a couple of prisoners out one night. Potiphar and his right-hand man will probably die. But he doesn't. Why? He's totally trustworthy. So now this man who did nothing wrong is languishing in the dungeon and the wicked woman that has falsely accused him is enjoying a life of luxury right above his head. And every Bible believer that reads that story will be upset by it, as we should. We read that story and we go, that's not right. It's unjust. Makes your blood boil. As it should. Joseph did exactly as he should have done. And yet... He was rewarded with evil. We know that's not right. If anybody had cause in this story to be bitter, it was Joseph. And yet, he wasn't. He did what was right before the Lord, and now he's being punished for it. He's being persecuted for it. And there are two points that I wanted to bring out, and I brought out last time, and I'll remind you of. Number one, friend, that is, part, that is the normal part of the Christian life. Being punished or persecuted for doing what's right is a normal part of the Christian experience. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You will suffer persecution. But two, and here's another point that I want to bring out today, if you're angry about the injustice of it all, just keep reading. Listen, the story's not done yet. Have you been done wrong? Has injustice been done to you? Well, wait. The story's not done being written yet. God's timeline is so much longer than ours, we often get upset at what we see as the unrighteous flourishing. We get upset because we see injustice, and we don't see it being dealt with right now. Trust me, I'm not throwing daggers at you. I am that guy. I get upset. In Psalm 73, which we literally just read this morning, Asaph is faced with that same very, that very same dilemma. He's lamenting that the ungodly are prospering, the ungodly are at ease, and the upright and those with integrity, God's people, are being oppressed and trampled on, and it's not right, God. And he's correct in his assertion, in his assessment. It's not right. And he says, I, I don't know how to reconcile this, this injustice. It's too painful. Right? I, don't, I can't even think about it. It pains my heart so much. He says this, verse 16, 17. When I tried to understand this, it was too great and too painful for me. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. For I considered their end. In other words... I'm not able to understand it until I start to think on God's time scale. Our time scale is so limited, it's so short, it's so rapid that we want it dealt with right now. And God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours. He sees things that we don't see. He sees parts of this that we have no idea even exist. And he's working out all of those details for your good. And for his glory. 
It's what Romans 8.28 says. In other words, this isn't the final buzzer, folks. It's just halftime, right? God isn't through working yet, and he certainly has not abandoned Joseph. Christian, he has not abandoned you. He's not going to abandon his child in the toughest part of their life. You know what's hard for us? It's hard for us to remember that because we, we don't perceive God a lot of times. We don't feel him. We can't see him. Don't hear him. But, but the truth of the matter is just because you can't perceive him with your flesh does not mean he's therefore not there. You ever gone for a walk in the woods at night? There are a lot of things you do not perceive but that are, in fact, there. I have a friend who uh, he got some, some binoculars, well, there's low-power binoculars, but they have thermal imaging in them. That was cool. He let me borrow them one night. It was very cool. You're walking around out there in the woods, and you're like, I had no idea these animals would let me get this close when it's this dark, and I didn't even know they were there. You know what? Sometimes the Lord's that way. He is there. Yeah, but I can't feel him. Why aren't you talking to me, Lord? I can't, I can't feel you. Where are you in this thing? He's there. Just because your senses fail you does not mean your Lord does. No, God is still at work. He still has Joseph in his hand right where he wants him. He's still watching over Joseph. He has not surrendered his sovereignty over Joseph and Joseph's life, nor any other aspect of this entire situation, just like he's not done the same with you. Now, God gave me dreams, and I'm out here in the wilderness. That does not mean he's not at work. That does not mean he has surrendered his sovereignty. That does not mean he has decided to change his mind. God is still at work. And it may seem that the reward for righteousness is evil. But that's because we don't see things on God's time scale. The story is not over yet. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into chapter 40. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you would show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you would use me as a mouthpiece to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Guard me, Lord, today from error. Speak through your word for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. Let everything that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and you alone, Lord, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn with me to chapter 40. Let's get into this. Chapter 40, starting at verse 1, says this. Sometime after this. Now, what, what, is, what is the after? After what? Sometime after what? Sometime after he's already been thrown in jail. He's in prison now, right? Sometime after this. So how long was he there before this happened? We don't know. The cupbearer of the king of Egypt, and some translations will say the butler. This is the cupbearer. And the baker both committed an offense against their Lord, the king of Egypt. I told Clay Baker, I was preaching about him today, preaching about the baker. They committed an offense against their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. Now, this is interesting. Why, why would the captain of the guard appoint Joseph to go in and be with them? Explain some of this. These, listen, this is a big deal. Now, let, me, let me explain some of this. Let me, let me read verse 4. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. All right. What's going on? Why is the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker all of a sudden thrown into prison? Why would the captain of the guard say, hey, Joseph, I want you to attend to these guys' every need. I want you to take care of these fellas. He knows Joseph is very honest. My guess, and I, this is only an inference, I cannot prove it, my guess is his thinking is, hey, Joseph goes in there. If he discovers what's really going on, he'll tell me. Because they're definitely trying to figure out what's really going on. What's really going on? Probably it's an assassination plot, most likely by poison. That, that was pretty common in that day and age. By how the account will develop, most likely there's a plot to murder the Pharaoh, and these are the two top suspects. Probably it meant that the plot to murder Pharaoh was by poisoning, since the top two suspects are the men in charge of Pharaoh's food and drinks. And this kind of plot, murder by poison, was not uncommon in that day and age. In fact, it's not uncommon after that day and age. It's still not uncommon. It was so common in authoritarian societies of the past, that is to say when you had kings and queens... It was very common because, hey, somebody wants to kill you so they can be the king or queen, right? I'm going to take this authority for myself. In fact, that was so common that these two positions, the chief baker and the cup bearer, were deemed necessary. Why? These guys were basically the shield between the pharaoh and the poisons. What, what does the cupbearer do? Well, he's over the vineyard. He's over the wine. He's, his job is not just to make sure it is. Part of it is to make sure that everything that's done, the wine that's made, the mead, all of the drinks that Pharaoh is going to drink have to be top quality. But the real reason he's there is because before he gives Pharaoh any of that drink, he himself must drink a little bit of it. Why? It's to prove to the Pharaoh that at least as far as he knows, this thing is not poison. Is he's not going to drink it if it's poison. And the same thing with the baker. The baker's job, as they put out the feast, the baker's job obviously was to be over all of the meal prep for the pharaoh and for the pharaoh's court. But he also, anytime there was uh, food being served, his job was to take a bite of whatever, ever, everything that was out there. And especially, strangely enough, especially if it included vegetables, things like mushrooms, right? Why? Well, because they could be deadly. Anytime mushrooms or other potentially poisonous vegetables were being served, vegetable poisons were the best known and most frequently used at that time. Later on in history, we will see people use more exotic things, right? We start learning about heavy metal salts, things like arsenic and cyanide and things like that, or, or uh, electron transport chain interrupters, if you want the big technical term for cyanide and that group of toxins we don't find those though at that point in time at that point in time we have a lot of people that know hey there are these poisonous plants 
And if I can figure out a way to get this poisonous plant or the extract of this poisonous plant into this person's drink or food, they will be done for. Henbane, deadly nightshade, hemlock, all of those were well known at that point in time. If you remember your history, you know that Socrates was killed by drinking poisoned hemlock. So most likely a poisoning plot has been uncovered and the cupbearer and the head baker have been thrown in jail until this whole mess can be sorted through and the guilty party can be found out. Now think about it. Who do you think is over that trial? Whose job would it have been to sort that mess out? Potiphar. If Joseph would have been a bitter man, he could have made real trouble here. Yet he's not. He acts with integrity once again. And part of the reason that the Lord has brought the baker and the cupbearer into this prison, of course, is because he is working in this thing. He's bringing them to meet Joseph. He's bringing them into contact with him. Why? He's going to use these two pagan men in his rescue plan. He's going to use these two pagan men who are not acquainted with God or God's ways to move Joseph into the place of rule over over Egypt. And he's not moving Joseph into the place of rule over Egypt for Joseph's sake. He's doing it for the sake of his people, that is, Joseph's family. He's going to rescue his people from a deadly famine that he is going to send upon the earth. A famine that he is going to send upon the earth. Joseph says. So even though these two men were probably there on suspicion of murder, they're really there because God is bringing them into contact with Joseph. Now imagine what would have happened if Joseph was just bitter and mad. He doesn't care. But instead, he's tender-hearted toward these men. Look at what happens. Verse 5. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Why? Because he wasn't so concerned with himself. He was able to see beyond his own nose. Some people will tell me they're Christians, but they couldn't care less about other people. And it's very hard for me to think then that they therefore are, in fact, Christians. He's not selfish. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? He cares about them. He shows true care and concern for these two other prisoners. He could have been bitter at God and angry, and he would have missed the opportunity to minister to these two men. I mean, after all, he's an innocent man that spent at least 11 years at this point enslaved and being falsely accused through no fault of his own. People who are concerned with anger and bitterness do not often take a concern for the personal problems of others like this. And because of that, they miss the chance to minister to those around them. And then they wonder after years, how come God's not using me in a greater way? Maybe because your eyes are always on you. Joseph's heart is not bitter, and because of that, he notices something's wrong. 
Out of a genuine care and concern, he inquires into the matter. By the way, in this, we see a foreshadowing of Christ in Joseph. Right? Christ comes to our place, our prison, if you will. He is mistreated. And yet, rather than being absorbed and consumed with his own mistreatment, he is absorbed and consumed with love for his people. Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one here to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Tell me these dreams you've had, right? So here again, we see God is at work through the dreams of these men and through giving Joseph the proper and correct interpretation of these dreams. And now I'm going to say something that's super scary to many of us reform folks living in a word of faith culture, and that's this. God can still communicate and warn people through dreams. I know that's scary. It's scary for me to say that, okay? And let me, let me tell you why. It's scary for me to say that because there are also people who will try to use I had a dream as a way of saying, see, therefore, I am the mouthpiece of God. I am his prophet. You should listen to me. They will draw out disciples after themselves, like the wolves that we were warned about this morning in the quipping hour. But the truth of the matter is God can, in fact, communicate to people through dreams, and he does it a lot in the scriptures. Let me give you a few of them. He, he spoke to the pagan ruler Abimelech in a dream, Genesis chapter 20. Spoke to Jacob in dreams in Genesis 28 and 31. Spoke to Laban in a dream. Genesis 31. He spoke to the Midianite in a dream in Judges 7. Spoke to Solomon in a dream in 1 Kings. Spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream in Daniel. Spoke to Daniel in a dream in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Spoke to Joseph multiple times through dreams. He spoke to Pilate's wife in a dream in Matthew. Acts 2.17 tells us in the last days God would give young men visions and old men would dream dreams. It's true. Job 33 says this. For God does speak now one way and now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them away from their wrongdoing and to keep them away from their own pride. How interesting. To preserve their life from the pit, that goes on to say. By the way, strangely enough, in the scriptures at least, God speaks to unbelievers in dreams about twice as much as we record him speaking to his own people in dreams. That's interesting. That's a super scary thing to hear when you're a Baptist. And honestly, it's a super scary thing to preach to. Because it's so easy for people to hear what they want to in that statement rather than what's actually being said. So here's the other side of that story. I shouldn't have to say this, but I feel like I'm going to have to just, just to make sure, just in case, just so I'm not misunderstood. Not every dream that is dreamed is some divinely inspired message from God. Did you catch that? Sometimes you just shouldn't have eaten the slice of cold pizza before you went to bed. Okay? Sometimes it's simply because your mind is busy. Did you know the scripture literally says that? Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us that a dream may come through much activity. You know what it goes on to say? In the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. 
Instead, you should fear God. It's mm. good advice. That's sound advice. The Bible also warns us that false prophets attempt to use dreams to give weights to their message. That's Deuteronomy 13 and Jeremiah 23. It's one of the reasons it's so scary to preach this piece. There are always wolves attempting to draw the flock of disciples out after themselves. They want to make a cult of their own, if you will. And claiming to have prophetic dreams is just one more way to try to do that. I was in a Word of Faith church for years. I saw this over and over and over. That and the I have a prophetic word from God. I can promise you that if I hear someone tell me that God gave them a dream about anything, I'm going to be very skeptical. Now, I, I will admit to you, I'm probably kind of skeptical by nature. I'm a man of science, right? Show me the data. Don't tell me about your feelings. That's, that's the way I'm wired. But the point remains that it's still well within God's purview to warn people through dreams even today. It's quite incredible to me, by the way, to hear how many Muslim converts give credits to a dream about Jesus as part of their conversion testimony. That's pretty impressive. Now here's the question. So why should that be denounced or discredited? Believing the testimony of my ex-Muslim Christian brother does not mean that I must therefore concede that the obnoxious lady at the Word of Faith church down the street is a real prophetess who can predict the future through her dreams and visions. Okay? It is, in fact, possible to believe and embrace the authentic while rejecting the corrupt and the counterfeit. One does not necessitate the others. By their fruits, you will know them. It is not hard to spot a false prophet. It is not hard to spot somebody who's not nearly as spiritual as they're trying to put off. It's just that sometimes it's hard for us to articulate what the problem is. We know something's wrong. We can feel in our spirit something is wrong here, something's not right. But I can't quite figure out how to articulate it. Well, by their fruits, you'll know them. Let's go on before I kick this dead horse too much. So the chief cupbearer, verse 9, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and he'll restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me, verse 14, remember me when it's well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. Is it wrong for Joseph to want to be out of this situation? You know, some people preach that way. If you're in a hard situation and you want God to move you out of it, well, that's just wrong. No, it's not. Joseph is not sinning by asking God to remove him from this situation. You're not sinning by asking God to provide you a different situation. But you have to realize that God's answer may be no. It may be not yet. 
Verse 15. Joseph goes on. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Is that true? Or is he just belly aching? Well, that's true. 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. How would you like to be the guy delivering that interpretation? He tells you the dream and you go, uh, hey, buddy, listen, uh, I, I got bad news for you. I don't, I don't think you really want to know, right? But he doesn't waver. Verse 20, and on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Boy. Isn't it common for us to project ourselves into the, the narrative? I think this is interesting. You ever see yourself in that story? It's often, we, we start reading through the biblical narrative and we see ourselves in the story. You know what we, we like to do? We like to project ourselves into the hero. You know what I'm talking about? Boy, if I was there, I'd have been Joseph. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you were there, you'd have probably been the baker. You're accused of a crime against the king of which you are guilty. And there's a death penalty that you're staring down because of it. In this picture, it's actually that Jesus, who's more like Joseph. Think about it. An innocent man comes into our squalid prison and shares our condition. That innocent prisoner then reveals God's message to us. That innocent prisoner then is proven true after three days. Joseph shows us Jesus whose message from God brings life or death. Jesus' message brings life and death. Death to those whose hearts are hard and who will not respond in faith. If you're looking for a message from God today, listen to me. Please stop trying to analyze every dream that you had. There is a very sure message from God. If you're looking for a message from God today, then you need to look to Jesus, my friend. You need to look to the gospel. Here's the awesome thing, the difference and the contrast between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph's word only rescues the innocent prisoner, not the guilty one. Jesus came for the guilty. The gospel is even greater than the message that Joseph has. Jesus' word comes to guilty prisoners and says, I'm willing to forgive you. You're staring down a death sentence because of your sin against the king most high. And Jesus comes into the prison and says, 
I'm willing to forgive you. What you've done is wrong and it deserves death. And we should be falling down and saying, thank you, Lord. And you know instead what happens in the life of the heart of the impenitent sinner? It's, no, I didn't do anything. Nothing wrong with that. Don't tell me what I did was wrong. You're so judgmental. No, you're guilty, friend. The good news is that Jesus has come to rescue you. He's come to rescue you from that death penalty that you are looking at. You will serve that death penalty. Or someone will have to serve it in your place. The good news of Jesus is even better than the good news of Joseph. Verse 23, maybe the most sad of all. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Let me ask you something. Do you feel that way? You feel like maybe God forgot about you? Hey, God, you showed me things. Give me dreams. Have dreams to take your kingdom forward. Now I'm just in this pit. I'm just languishing. Just sitting here spinning my wheels. You feel like God gave you dreams, but you're just languishing now? Let me encourage you, Christian. Your timeline is not his timeline. His ways are not your ways. The story is not over yet. Here's another hard truth to that story. That story is not about you. He has not come to fulfill your dreams. You know what he's come to do? He's come to kill them. You know, I had a dream once, once upon a time, long, long ago, before I was so large and fat, I was something athletic. Oh, yeah, it's really fast for the position I played. Hey, one day, my thinking was, as a young Christian, God's going to get me into the NFL. And then I'm going to have this big platform because God's going to make me famous. And then when he makes me famous, then I'm going to make him famous by telling people about him. Isn't that a great plan? Do you know how many mis, misspent dreams in Christians' heads look something like that? Do you know what happened? This crazy thing happened. I started reading the Scripture. <laughs> and God started changing a lot of things. And you know what He did in me? You know what the first thing was? I mean, I'm praying for that to happen. You know what happened to me the first time in my life? I could not keep from getting injured. I get out of the field. I work my way up the depth chart. All right. I'm there. I have arrived. And I get injured. I go through all of the work and I get myself back. Work my way through it again. Get injured. And I'm just angry. I am bitter. God, you're not doing, you're not doing this plan the way the plan is supposed to be done. The plan is for me to be really famous and important. And then I'll make people know you are really famous and important. And you know what the Lord was saying? Oh, man. I can remember being really angry and I'm reading through my Bible, you know, bitter against the Lord. I'm reading through my Bible and you know what scripture I come across? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. I'm so angry because I think the plan is for me to have this millions of dollars life, right? 
You know what I was doing just because I was a Christian? I was telling people that I was playing football with about Jesus Christ. You know what happened? The two guys that were my lifting partner, we were all divided up into lifting groups. Do you know everybody in my lifting group got born again? They couldn't get away from me because all I could talk about was Jesus. Right? Like, he <laughs> got all this weight on the bench press. And I'm telling them about the Lord. Not realizing that was his plan all along. He did not come to fulfill your dreams of your own grandeur. He came to kill them. He came to give you new life, new dreams that are not centered around you, but that are centered around the only one that's worthy of them. That's Jesus Christ. Friend, listen, if you're upset because God has not fulfilled your plan, it might be because your plan is not the best plan. It might be because your plan is not his plan. It might be because his ways are higher than your ways. His ways are greater than you. He sees other things that you don't understand. You know what? I I was kind of off and on bitter about that. About uh, eight or nine years ago, we had some real good research come out on CTE. How many guys had CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, from playing football? The more football you played, the greater was your risk. Only one NFL player ever tested did not test positive for it, and he was a kicker. Which, just to let you know, if you play football, that's not really a football player. That's a soccer player wearing football pants. Just letting you know. I played defensive end. I hit people with my head all the time. I had headaches that lasted for weeks. I had a stutter. I had brain fog all the time. I'm certain if God would have let me go my way, I might not even be here today. I certainly would not have a brain that functioned. I was smacking that brain into oblivion. God was killing my dreams and rescuing me in the process. Listen, if you let me come today and I look out here at at my precious wife, my precious children, I would choose that a hundred times over rather than the plans that I had for me. Listen to me, Christian. His ways are higher. Joseph did not understand what God was doing when Joseph interpreted the dreams and then had to stay in the prison for two more years. But you know who did know what they were doing? God did. You know who knows what they're doing with the course of your life? God does. You may not understand it. You may not get get it. It may not be the way you want or the way you have planned. But please trust me when I say the Lord's plans are better. And he's still in charge. He has not surrendered his sovereignty over you. And that's because he loves you too much to do so. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your, that you're a God who loves us enough not to, let, not to let us fulfill our own dreams for us. But that you're sovereign and that you're guiding us and leading us, even when we don't perceive it, even when we don't understand it. That you have brought to us a rescue plan. That you have in your grace gathered us. And that you are leading and guiding us for our good and for your glory. God, I thank you for that. I pray you will work in our lives. Lord, let us be
Let us be willing to offer Christ to them. Change our hearts. Build us up that we can be more like Christ to a dying world. I thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.